You're listening to Frontline by Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to helping you create a thriving workplace where everyone feels connected. This is episode number seven on strategies to take from the classroom into the boardroom. Our guest today is best-selling author, public speaker, and corporate trainer, Mark Oberman. Hi, welcome to Frontline by Speak Up, the podcast dedicated to helping you create a thriving workplace where everyone feels connected. I'm your host, Matt Warnock, and I'm head of content here at Speak Up. We created the Frontline podcast because our business requires us to have a deep understanding of how to engage and involve employees from every level of an organization. But we don't want to just share this information with you. We also want to learn from other leaders in the business world. And our guest on today's podcast episode is Mark Oberman. Mark is a best-selling author and featured on WCBS Radio's Top 50 Human Interest Stories. His books draw from his 30 years' experience as an educator and the personal journey that he has been on to live and understand the seizure disorder he was diagnosed with over 35 years ago. So, welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks so much for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Excellent. I'm looking forward to this one. I think we're going to have a really good conversation. Sure. So, Mark, we always like to start off our podcast with a, a nice, fun, easy question to ease our guests in and let the audience get to know you a little bit. So I want to know, what's the very first app that you look at your phone in the morning or when you get up and the last thing you look at on your phone before you go to bed at night? Interesting. So I believe it's the same answer. I, I can't really call it an app. Uh, it's email. Email, email, email. I'm all about communication. I love to read. Uh, it's all about deleting the junk email too, but uh, it's email when I wake up, email when I go to sleep. And I'm always curious, uh, how close to waking up is it that you first grab for your phone? Are you a kind of bedside uh, table phone or, or do you kind of have that quiet period in the morning? Oh, I wish you didn't ask that question. <laughs> if I am legally up, I reach for that phone. It's not good. I, any, any young people listening, get your sleep. <laughs> uh, I just, uh, when I can, I look at it. Uh, so it should be when I wake up, but I don't really get quiet time. When I'm sleeping, it's quiet time. Yeah, I'm the same at night. Is it the last thing you kind of do? Or do you look at your phone or do you read before going to bed? I do read a lot. I read a lot. I read probably two books a week. Uh, a lot of fiction, actually, and a lot of self-help books also. But I, I find, and I do this when I teach people, you know, my speed reading course, that if you read in bed, it's you get drowsy faster. So if you want to read just for 10 minutes, fine. But uh, I, I, I will definitely read before I go to sleep also. It's either emails or books, but absolutely Kindle, whatever. Yeah. Good stuff. So before we get into today's topic, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and well, how you progress from being an educator into the corporate training world? Of course. So uh, I just finished a 33 year career as an English teacher. And within the scope of that time period. I did a lot of things. I was in charge of peer mediation and conflict resolution for the district. I did anti-bullying workshops, but I was in the classroom for 33 years. Also a dean of discipline. When you're in college and you're on the dean's list, it's a good thing. When you're in high school and you're on the dean's list, it's not a good thing. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a behavioral issue. So uh, I did that for many, many years, over three decades. While doing that, I always did staff training in schools and had a staff training business for day camps and residential camps. And I dabbled a little bit when I had time in corporate. And I finally started to see that, uh, you know, the, the issues they had in schools, in camps, 
with the same issues that adults were having in the workplace. And they do tie in together, and especially now with the new workforce. You know, I taught the people who are now the millennials in the workforce. So now I can teach them and help them and, and train them in the workplace. And I'm curious because it's a it's a topic which is becoming, you know, sort of coming up time and time again is that idea of the, the four generation workforce. Do you do you see that kind of um, differentiation between the generations and how they hit the workforce and the kind of expectations of an employer? And is it as cut and dried as we think it is? OK, so uh, very telling because you hit upon a word I'm going to use a lot today, and that's the expectation. I think it's based on upbringing. I see a tremendous, tremendous difference. Some good, some not so good. Uh, and even my own children, one's 25, one just graduated from uh, the Rutgers Honors College last week, actually. Congratulations. And I see a tremendous difference. What they can do on a computer, what they can do with apps, what they can do is mind boggling. But I'm old school. I was brought up by my father, who, if he were alive now, would be almost 100. He was old school, a very different work ethic. It was a given back in the day, I'll call it, that you did a day's work for a day's pay. I'm not trying to put anybody down, but a lot of the people I see today, it's the gimme, gimme, gimme. When's my, when's my vacation? Uh, can I leave 15 minutes early? Not that you shouldn't be allowed to do that once in a while, but uh, you know, I see a big difference in both the attitude, but also the ability level. I think the ability level by and large, is much greater today with today's younger workforce. I just think the work ethic was better, and I try to work with that when I do my team building and communication skills. I think it was better uh, a few a generation or two ago. And has that led to sort of increased conflict in the workforce or in the workplace, I should say? Absolutely, because what you have to understand is not always, but often the managers are more experienced, therefore older than the people, you know, who they supervise. And their expectations uh, are sometimes, are often very high, but unfortunately often not articulated correctly. So there's a big gap between what do you want me to do and how do I do it better and what do you really expect? And, you know, this happens with people who are even the same age also, but when there's that generation gap, Sometimes it's a good thing because the best manager is one who's willing to work from people who he supervises, uh, work with and learn from, I should say, the people that he supervises. So, you know, it is difficult. There's conflict to begin with. You know, life is based on conflict, inner conflict, you know, external conflict. But certainly in the workplace, there is. And I think that the generational difference can add to that. Yeah. And also, I guess, uh, communication styles around those differences, uh, even, you know, we see we've we've recently done a piece of research um, around uh, speak up and how some of our users um, use speak up. And we see that kind of the idea of like the like the, you know, that kind of thumbs up. That's how people now show, I don't know, understanding and compassion and uh, support for each other. In, in it's it's almost become its own shorthand. It's become its own language. So that's a real different style to maybe 10 years ago, even. Oh, absolutely. Even the way people ask questions. Most of my training, because of the, I started in the uh, academic sector as well as uh, day camp and residential sleepaway camps. Uh, even the way people ask questions, when I do my training, it always starts with uh, almost like a, an icebreaker. But 
the real meat and potatoes, as we say, is in my debrief of the icebreaker. Yeah, this was fun. You laughed. It was interactive. But let me explain to you how it translates to how you can do your job more effectively, even asking questions the correct way uh, to get more information and not just leave it out there for an open-ended yes or no is a strategy and it, it is a style you have to learn. I'm interested on that kind of change of style. Um, maybe sort of uh, this this goes almost the reverse way from the workplace to the classroom or, or maybe you can correct me, but um, have you found that the educators have had to change how they teach as well? And I'm thinking kind of, you know, we, we kind of refer to this generation, almost the YouTube generation, that whereas, I don't know, you know, I'm kind of uh, knocking on to 40 now. Uh, and, you know, I remember the days of referring to physical encyclopedias and the days before Wikipedia. And now, you know, if you want to learn Japanese, you do it on YouTube. You know, that's such a, a different way of kind of approaching the learning scenario. Is that really affecting uh, educators? Absolutely. And I have to tell you that uh, teaching when I went to school was very different. Uh, now, more often than not, unfortunately, and I, and I do, I mention this a lot when I train in schools, we teach to the test. Teachers don't like teaching to the test because that's just teaching you how to do well on this test. Now, a lot of my tutoring business is based on the SAT and ACT college prep exams. And for that, you really do have to teach to the test. But when I'm in a classroom for 10 months, I want to teach lessons. I want to teach important concepts and not just teach towards the regents that's coming up or the big test that's coming up. So, uh, you know, I definitely see that issue. You know, people have asked me very often about, you know, the use of technology in the classroom and education. I think it's wonderful, but I like it as an addition to, not an, and instead of. And for example, I don't know, I don't know half of much as, as much as my sons knew on a computer when they were 11, but I know more about the computer now than I did when I first got a computer. So I've added that to my repertoire, so to speak. Yeah. But I didn't get rid of the other skills that I've had and I learned. Uh, when I wrote my memoir, you know, uh, Adversity Defeated, Turn Your Struggles Into Strengths, which dealt with, it's not a book about epilepsy. My struggle is just epilepsy. It's a book about overcoming adversity. But it took me months and months. I got, I was in contact with the Mayo Clinic and different hospitals, the Epilepsy Foundation. I was doing work on microfiche which no kid I talk to now knows what I'm talking <laughs> about to, to get information into the research. Now, what took me three months, I could probably do it in two hours on a Google search and certainly on a YouTube video. Yeah, but it's still that process of being able to research um, a subject and, and kind of uh, assimilate that information to a new perspective. That's still valid, that, that kind of uh, knowledge that you had. It's just the tools that you have which have changed. Exactly my point. So, the, you know, it flows into each other. It's like a scaffold technique, but you have to have the first on the left to move to move forward or to the right. So some people are, have a little gap in between there. Technology is excellent, but, it, you know, teaching has changed. We have kids who could, you know, there are kids who write papers, you hand them in, and if you have a good scanning program, you see that they bought the paper for $90 off the internet. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? We're so, yep. such a different world. Um one of the things I was really interested in, you, you spoke earlier on about um, kind of those those kind of, um, how would I say, the, the kind of relationship elements that you traditionally think as maybe as being the school play. So uh, like bullying, for example, but that actually kind of follows through into the workplace a lot more than I think probably most of us expect. Well, it, it takes 
it takes different forms and different, it comes in different sizes, so to speak. You know, bullying, you're fat, you're a terrible athlete, you're ugly. He doesn't want to date you because of this or that. That's a lot in the school or teen realm. But there is workplace bullying. There's a way to ask for a report to be on your desk on Tuesday at 9. And there's a way to try to bully somebody into that because you're not a good manager, because you uh, take advantage of your position of power, which is what bullying is, is an imbalance of power. So, uh, and of course, I, I believe, and it's more serious, that sexual harassment in the workplace is a much worse form of bullying. But, you know, it's just small kids, small problems, big kids, big problems. And then you get the adults, bigger problems. Yeah. So, uh, absolutely. So, bullying takes place in many different forms, even through emails now. I mean, forget social media that teens have. I've seen in companies, I've seen emails. And by the way, this happens in written form anyway. It's very hard in a text or email to get your attitude across or what you really want across. And sometimes I've seen harmless things that were meant to be harmless that are really kind of insulting, bullying correspondence uh, between supervisors and, and just managers and other managers. So uh, and even corporate. So bullying, you know, it just gets progressively worse uh, as you get older and in the workplace, it's there. Yeah. And, you, and uh, if you were working with a, whether it's an individual or a team, how do you go about addressing, the, addressing those? So say there is a, a you know, a, a toxic communication um, dynamic within a team. How would you go about kind of tackling that? So actually, I do something called pass the problem. So I'll have four people in, uh, it could be 50 people in a room, but let's say I have four people in a room. So I will have pre-typed some of or copied some of these correspondences. And I would say, pass the problem. You have it in front of you. What do you see as being wrong with this? How would you fix it? Pass it to the next person. How would you fix it? Pass the next person. And now inside of three to five minutes, you have four different perspectives. And even some things that I see that are wrong, the way I would fix it, I actually learn from others. And I say, well, I didn't think about that. That's really an excellent point. So I think you need to bring other people into it because, you know, a lot of times, uh, unfortunately, people don't, you could bring it to their attention and people don't see it. When you start to, if you're the person who's, who's written the bad correspondence or whatever, and then eventually you see another one written by someone else and you're part of past the problem, how would you fix this? You start to see your mistakes and the mistakes in others. I'm an educator in, in my heart and learning from others and learning by doing is the best and only way to learn. That's really interesting. Are there any other examples where, where you see that kind of dynamic, that school, school kind of dynamic uh, shifting into the workplace? And how, how do you, you know, what other uh, sort of strategies do you have for dealing with those? Absolutely. So uh, lack of good communication. They're overwhelmed often. Students are overwhelmed with their work. Uh, teachers are so sometimes overwhelmed with the work that they have. And it's the same thing in the workplace. You know, a manager's overwhelmed and he needs certain things and he can't get it because his team uh, that he's supervising isn't doing what they need to be done. So it's all the communication and the team building is very, very important because uh, I have to tell you that uh, people don't often know. I'm amazed that the person in cubicle one is affected by the job that the person in cubicle four does, yet neither one of the people understands what the job is for the other person. So I don't know why I can't get this in two hours. I just requested it. Well, 
The other person knows it takes three hours to do. So I think that people have to learn more about being in another position. You know, great point. And this is actually in my memoir. I was, I was a really, really good bus boy. I mean, one of the best. Best as you could see. They said, oh, my God, you're great. You have to become a waiter. I was absolutely the very worst waiter you ever saw. <laughs> I mean, couldn't carry. I could clean a table like nobody's business, but I couldn't deliver things to the table. You know, so, so you know, and I, and I just wasn't good at it. And they, you know, they said, would you like to go back to being a busboy? Of course I would. But I always had a different view of the job of a waiter. Yeah. At that point. It's interesting that we... Um... That kind of that you, that's even that little story makes me think that a lot of big organizations we promote people who are good at one job to become the managers of that job, right? Even though they might not necessarily be fit to be the manager, we assume that you're good at one role, therefore you climb to the next rung of the ladder. But it's not always the right rung to be on. No, and I, and I agree with you. So, but but that's two sided. So you're right. Sometimes it's not the good fit. But I believe that people who are really great at one position who get promoted to another position often aren't trained properly for that other position, mm -hmm. aren't explained the exact uh, expectations of someone in that position. They may have seen somebody else do the job. Doesn't mean you're going to do it the same way. But I really feel that, and that comes to communication, Matt. That, again, is, was it communicated the expectations, what this job entails, and what training am I putting in place to make you the best at this managerial position because you were so good at the sales position. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, but uh, we, we kind of assume that just cause in that, yeah, like that example again, that you just, cause you've done such a great job at, in that sales position, you're going to, you know, you're going to be skilled. You're going to find the skills yourself or, or uh, solve the riddle of being a manager for that position. Whereas actually it requires a lot of investment from the organization as well to make a really great manager. Right. That's, that's a major pain point in corporations, because if somebody doesn't do a good job, maybe the, the, the opening doesn't exist where they came from. Now they're going to, lose, going to lose a good, loyal employee and it saves you money to train. People always say, well, training does cost a lot of money. You have to bring consultants in, people such as myself. Yes, it may cost money. What does it cost you to lose a good worker, hire a new worker, hope that worker uh, does, does the job that you expect? So, uh, you know, it, it's got to be you know, a, a level playing field of good management and good instruction and good training. Is that a perception which is changing? Because uh, it's something we definitely see here at Speak Up. Uh, I think sort of uh, the latest studies show that even with a, a fairly kind of um, uh, entry-level position, uh, sort of service-level position in uh, like a restaurant or uh, within retail, it look, you're looking at kind of maybe $5,000 for every employee that you need to replace in terms of, you know, uh, putting the search out in terms of the time to interview some people, uh, the time to train them up. And that doesn't even account for the kind of lack of productivity while the other employee's leaving and maybe the new employee gets up to speed. So do you think that's something that organizations are starting to realize or at least is that still kind of not really uh, reach the the kind of senior management that need to need to kind of be aware of those issues. I think that uh, it's it's a percentage play. Fifty percent realize it. Fifty percent don't realize it or will never realize it. My percentages could be off, but I will tell you this: those who are realizing it, you're realizing it too late. Sometimes, sometimes you know you're, you're closing the barn door after the horse is already out. Yeah. 
because some people only realize it when they see how much money it has cost them. When they see how many good uh, workers, good employees have moved on to other things. Even people who do a good job because the culture of the company isn't where it needs to be. I could be a great worker, but the culture and doing my job really well, but I'm leaving because not just people don't only leave because of money and because one job is closer to their house than another, but they leave oftentimes because of the culture, the yeah. treatment while other people stay a long time. Yes. Sometimes because of the money, but there are many companies where they stay longer because they just love the company. It's not always about money. And I do believe the millennials are a little more into money uh, now than, in the, than past workers. But what is the culture of your company? Yeah. Are people whistling on the way to work? Do they whistle while they work? Like, uh, you know, Snow White, the seven dwarfs, or are they, you know, they, they're looking at their watch, can't wait for the five o'clock whistle, like on the Flintstones. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it depends. So, you know, it's a long winded answer to it, but I think it's more involved than just to, are they realizing it? Yes. Yeah. They realize it, but some companies really put a lot of camps, put money to this and hire people every year. Some corporations do, but a lot don't. And they think they're saving money. And I'm telling you, they're losing money. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, if you, if you're not focused on culture and culture can be what, like recognition, training, opportunities, all those different things. I mean, if, if you, if you flatten all those things and take them away, then it does just become a case of where's closest to where I live and who's going to pay me most. That's the only differentiator. Right. And I'm not saying those aren't important things. Those need to be part of yeah. the reason, not the reason. Yeah. But you're, you're, uh, uh, sort of opening yourself up to losing your best people very easily when you don't focus on culture. And it's a lot easier to keep them than they think. Yeah. Because, you know, I tell people all the time in camps, you know, a smile is a universal language. What does it cost to smile? My, my sons make fun of me all the time because I always have this corporate training, teacher training idea in my head. And I say to them, do you see how uh, that person just gave me water at, uh, at the restaurant without me asking? Oh, what's the big deal? The big deal is I didn't have to ask and... This person is more important to me coming back than some of the other people that work here because the person's nice, is offering to help me, is fast. So we have to understand that no matter what your position, okay, if, you, if, you're, if you're a custodian, be the best custodian. If you're the best, if you're a heart surgeon, be the best heart surgeon you can. Be compassionate and, 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 and willing to learn in every aspect of your job. Everybody, again, gets back to cubicle one and cubicle four. Do you know what this other person's doing and how it makes it easier to do your job? Because if the guy doesn't, if the cleaning crew doesn't wash the floor correctly, I'm going to slip and fall and hit my head and I'm going to be out of work for one week. And that's a real draconian, you know, way of putting it. But the truth is, that's what team building is. Yeah. Appreciating, understanding what everybody brings to the organization. So, and maybe the, uh, can use this as a last question before we get into the quick fire round to finish. But um, what I'm interested with that sense of kind of team building and shared responsibility, you used a term before, which is um, like teaching for tests, that how do we move away from that in a work structure where we're not just kind of... Um, you know, like working for KPIs and we're not just trying to kind of, you know, tick the box because that's what we said we'd do. And that was, that's our, our agreement or our SLA with another department. How do we get past that kind of, uh, yeah, sort of teaching for test in, in the workplace? I think, uh, especially for the workplace, it's true in school too. There's one word, communication. When was the last time somebody asked an employee, is there a better way that I can help you 
achieve this task? You have to, you know, you've been late getting my reports in. I want it. What is there a way? What am I missing? What do you need from me? I rarely heard that and I teach it all the time. What do you need from me to do your job better? What do you need from me to make, what do you need from this company to make you happier in the workplace and make you love being here? I don't think I've heard that question three times. <laughs> yeah. And especially from a management side, right? The idea of a manager being there for the employees rather than vice versa is so important. Yes. Well, it's, 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 not, they have to learn the difference between managing a person and managing the growth of a person. Those are two very different things. And that, that makes someone uh, a stellar manager compared to just somebody who has the title because uh, the title is not as important as the people. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave this first half. Um, we created this podcast as a place to hear and learn from leaders and experts on how they create a thriving workplace. And we know there's no one size fits all solution. And every industry has its own unique challenges. But in an attempt to learn a little bit more, we ask every guest five rapid fire questions that we like to call the Thrive Five, all about how to drive your workforce and to succeed. So, Mark, the first question, is there a single employee benefit that you feel should be mandatory within every organization? Yes. And some people, when they hear the word benefit, they think, yes, health benefits. Yeah. So I'm going to say, yes, health benefits. Very important. Let's put that aside for a minute. This is a benefit that you cannot put a price on. And that's the benefit of feeling safe in the workplace. And people always think about, oh, safe. There shouldn't be glass on the floor. I mean, emotional and physical safety. Mm -hmm. And part of that is I must be safe to fail. I must be safe to make a mistake and be able to come to you for an answer without looking weak, without looking incompetent. And with you being able to say as a manager, this person is a great worker because he or she doesn't know how to do something. And this person is asking for help. And that emotional and physical safety needs to be there every single day because that takes away the stress and the adversity. It's a different type of adversity than the adversity in my memoir, but that's an adversity that is the black cloud that hovers over many employees in the workplace today. Yeah, that's a great point. Excellent. Okay, question two. If there was one piece of advice that you could give yourself at the start of your career, what would it be? Uh, I would have learned more from others. And I did do this, but the first five years I did. I was young and I had all this energy. <laughs> Knew it all. I played basketball <laughs> during my lunch period at the, uh, with the kids and I was loved by the kids and I really got along well with the kids, but I was a good teacher. I wasn't a great teacher. It wasn't until I went into the classrooms of others because I had some classes where I had the same students as somebody before me. And the person before me was a woman who was four foot 11. And you could hear a pin drop in the room. Here they come into my room. I'm 24 years old. I can't keep anybody seated. So I started to go into her room and I started to see how she ran a classroom. And I always learned from others. And a very important point is I didn't just learn what to do. I went into some classes and I learned what not to do. I saw some people who did not do a good job who didn't really have a passion for the children and the job. And you can also learn what not to do. I do a lot of my training based on opposites. Here's what you should not do. Here's what I draw a picture of what a bad worker looks like. I do that all the time at camps. They love it. Show me a picture of a bad counselor. Show me a picture of a good counselor. And that speaks volumes. Never, you know, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words has never been truer than when I do that strategy. Great. Excellent. Third question. 
What are the most obvious signs that employers should look for that indicates that their workplace culture might need a shakeup? I think that, uh, as I said earlier, when nobody knows what other people's jobs look like or the importance of those jobs and they only know their job, what you do is you end up with having tunnel vision and you only see your job and you could be great at your job, you could be passionate, but if you don't know what the person is responsible for who feeds you information you need and you don't know the job of the person who takes the work that you do and turns it into something else, you don't have your finger on the pulse of the company. I don't want people just to have their knowledge and finger on the pulse of their job. I want them to, but I want them to understand what the entire company is all about because that builds teamwork from within. And that goes to that kind of the whole uh, Simon Sinek kind of uh, companies with purpose piece, right? The, the companies need to do a better job of explaining what business they're in and why. Um, as, oh, well, yeah. as well as potentially sort of managers around like, you know, what their part of that is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, people really have to know what's going on uh, aside from what it says in the corporate manual. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. We touched on a couple of these already, but I want to know um, what are the books or resources that you'd recommend to anyone who's interested in business culture? So, so, the, so the list is kind of too long. <laughs> I'll just tell you this. And now I can do this 15, 20 years ago. You can Google certain things. I always read leadership books and self-improvement books, but I will tell you that it's a very long book, but The Fifth Discipline by Peter uh, Senge, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, um, is phenomenal. So, uh, so much information on situational leadership and how things change and how people can work together. I've always loved his works, but that one in particular is, is, is a tremendous bestseller and so helpful. And, you know, you can, you, you can, you can go from different chapters. You don't have to go in order. So something like that, I, I really love. Excellent. That's a good recommendation. I've not heard that one. So um, adding it to my list, because I also enjoy uh, books around culture and, and kind of leadership specifically. Okay, so final question. If there's one small kind of uh, easier change that employers can make right now, right, you know, they're listening to this podcast and they, they think they want to start to mix up or improve their business culture. What's a small change that they can make to help their workplace to thrive? So I'm not going to say it's a small change. I'm going to say it's an easy change. I think it's the biggest change they can make, and it is so easy. It's how to make your expectations known. I think that um, I, I actually know that people don't make their expectations known. You know, I want you to do a good job. Okay, what does that mean? I think you have to let people know these are your job tasks. That's A. Here's B. Here's what we believe success looks like in your job. That's a very big difference. I can't tell you how many times I've overhauled the evaluations and reviewing process of employees from companies because uh, I'd say 95% of the places where I've gone, be it corporations, schools, or, or, or camp situation, that people get their evaluation after six months. And I, and I said, when do they see their evaluation? On the day of the evaluation. Well, why wouldn't you give me the evaluation the day you hire me and say, when we evaluate you, Here's what we're looking for and be specific. I've seen it say punctuality on certain lists. What does that mean? <laughs> okay. Because it means different people. I'm telling you, there's some millennials that if you start at, uh, supposed to start at nine and they're at, the, at their desk at 10 after nine, they think they're on time. Yeah. And I'm telling you that when my father was told to be at work at 8 a.m., if he got there at 730, he thought he was late. 
So what is the expectation? What does success look like in your job? And here's how, and here is who you report to when you have a problem. So, so, so many people are just left hanging. They just assume that they, they know the situation and they know what's expected of them. That is clearly not the case. So expectations, making them known, letting the people know what they will be evaluated on, how they'll be evaluated, and what does success look like for this person in their job. Yeah, I think that's such a great point because it goes back to that piece around communication, right? That we can we can all be using the same words and mean a different thing. So like uh, that point around punctual uh, being punctual is 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 perfect. If I need to be somewhere at nine o'clock, it means I'm there at eight forty-five and sat down at my desk at nine o'clock. Is that what you mean, or do you mean, yeah, like you say, be here kind of around nine o'clock, and then we exactly. slowly start work. Right, and and and, I, and I'll close my. my you know, answer with this, which is very important uh, initially with children. And now I see it's so important in the corporate workplace. Nobody rises to low expectations. Nobody. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic point to end on. So, Mark, where can people learn a little bit more about you? So when it comes to the corporate training, even my my publishing, uh, not publishing, my co-authoring business, I co-author books with people. That would be www.markhoberman.com, M-A-R-C. H-O-B-E-R-M-A-N.com. A lot of my life coaching and, of course, my tutoring business and academic uh, life coaching is at www.gradesuccess.com, G-R-A-D-E-S-U-C-C-E-S-S.com. And uh, that's the best way to, to reach me. And for your books, all the usual places, Amazon, bookshops, Am- et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're all on Amazon. And uh, also they're on my markcoberman.com site. And, you know, I, have, I can send people ebooks as well so uh yeah so they can i can be found there excellent well thank you so much mark it's been a pleasure having you on this podcast thank you so much matt it's been my pleasure and i thank your listeners for joining us today yeah thank you listeners for joining us if you liked our podcast please leave a review on itunes and if you have any comments or suggestions you can reach us on twitter facebook and linkedin you can also contact us via email at podcast at speakapp.com Thanks again for listening and we'll speak again soon. Bye-bye.